Hello, Evergreen. I want to continue our Bible study from First and Second Thessalonians that we have entitled Living the Future Now. We've completed the first letter to the Thessalonian church. Now I want to look at, I want us to begin with chapter one of Second Thessalonians. I want to start by offering you a dilemma. What if you were a running back for a team that made it all the way to the Super Bowl? You've played the entire season and now the championship is here and you're preparing for the Super Bowl and somebody comes to you, somebody that you have tremendous confidence in, somebody that would know this fact and they say to you, your team is guaranteed to win the Super Bowl. There's no doubt. It's a lock. Everything is already in place. Your team is going to win the Super Bowl. You would say, wow, that's awesome. That's great. I, I'm so glad to hear that. And he would say, okay, but here's, here's something that I want you to consider. Only people who give maximum effort will get a Super Bowl ring. There's your dilemma. What do you do? As the running back on the Super Bowl team, you have absolute confidence that your team is going to win. Do you go out and play that game all out, full speed, hard charging with everything you have in you because you want to receive the reward for those who put their maximum effort on the field? Or do you run your routes? Do you sit on the bench? Do you sort of wait for the time to tick away because you know that as soon as the gun goes off, your team will have won, you can celebrate? Do you just sort of bide your time until the celebration comes? Or do you put full all effort into the process, even though you already know the victory has been won? As we come to Second Thessalonians, that's sort of the dilemma of the Christian life. Paul is going to go to this church that he has unrestrained enthusiasm about. I mean, this is a great church. Their congregational life is healthy and strong. Their ministry is, is widespread. Their reputation is, is positive among, uh, among the whole region. This is a great church. But Paul is going to address some things as we come to the second letter that really sort of fall into the category of the scenario that I've described. They know that victory is theirs, but there's a portion of the church that has decided to just sort of run out the clock, to just wait for the celebration. And Paul comes to this church that is healthy and strong, and he's so proud of them. And in the first chapter, he's going to start by reminding them of those things that he's most proud of, the, the commendations that he has for their church. He's going to give them some intercession. He's going to describe the, the prayers that he's praying for that church. When we get to the second chapter, he's going to teach us about what he calls the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And in the same way that there was a chapter uh, at the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5 of, of, of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul speaks pastorally about last things, 
he's going to come in this letter to talk about uh, some things related to, to the end days that we need to know about, the, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and, and the things that we can look for. And that's going to be a fascinating study uh, in the next chapter, chapter 2. But then he rounds it out in chapter 3 with this practical admonition that this church, that the people in this church who are just, uh, to use that sports analogy, just running out the clock, he wants them to understand that that's not an acceptable way of life for a follower of Jesus Christ. We do know that we win in the end, but that's not supposed to inspire laziness in us. It's not supposed to create apathy. It's not supposed to put us in a position where we kick back and say, well, we won. We just wait for the celebration. Knowing that we've won is meant to, to help us in the, in, in, in the, in the trenches, in the fight of our life, giving it our best effort. We're willing to fight one more day because we have the guarantee that we win. How a Christian approaches the life we've been called to is a huge indicator of the presence of the Spirit in his life. There are church members in our generation, in every church, who they attend, they enjoy, they participate as it's convenient, but in effect, they're running out the clock. They're waiting for the celebration to begin. What Paul is going to call us to, what the Spirit of God is going to call us to, is not in spite of the fact that we know victory is ours, but because of the fact that we know victory is ours. We need to be sold out to this thing called the church, to the shared life of the community of believers. We need to be involved in ministry. We need to be dedicated with our money. We need to be devoted with our time. We need to have practical love for the, for the others in the body, even when it inconveniences us. We need to be all in. Because even though victory is ours, we are called to give maximum effort until the day that the celebration actually starts. Open your Bibles with me to Second Thessalonians, the first chapter. This chapter is brief, and Paul just has a few things to say that, that I want to highlight and uh, and then we'll wrap this up and be ready for uh, his more in-depth uh, discussion of the man of lawlessness that begins in chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 1. Uh, I've, I've called this a general commendation. Um, the, first, uh, the first eight verses of this chapter, I mean the first ten verses of this chapter are really the things that Paul commends the church about. And I've, I've got some... Uh, some further uh, breakdown for you in the outline. And then the last two verses of the chapter will move from general commendations to specific intercessions. And he's going to talk specifically about the prayer that, that he's praying for them. Uh, let me read this entire chapter and then we will, uh, we'll look through these commendations and, and, and see what, what we can, what we can divine from it. Second Thessalonians chapter one. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on the address. This is really the, the address on the outside of the envelope, if you will. But I, I do love Paul's, um, the way Paul describes the church. Even his address is, is ripe with, 
with a theological assessment of who we are as the people of God. It's interesting. He says, I'm writing, and he's with Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. Um, by the way, this letter probably is just a matter of a few short months uh, on the heels of the first letter. First and second Thessalonians are probably the earliest letters that we have uh, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Um, he wrote the first one. We, we have completed that study. But as, as solid as this church was, this, this issue began to arise of some of the church members misunderstanding um, some, some of the events related to the last times. And so they had sort of sold all their goods and packed it up. They were, they were, they were a portion, there was a portion of the church family that was living off the generosity of the rest of the church family because they were waiting for the immediate return of Christ. All right, we'll get to that problem in the third chapter. Uh, but he, he describes the church in these early verses in this great uh, definition. He says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things that should always be said about Evergreen. We have a physical location. We are uh, responsible for a geographical uh, space of people to whom we minister, a place where our witness is to be practical and on display. Uh, we are the people of God called Evergreen in the, the Tulsa metro area. The church has uh, an earthbound geographical location. It's tied to a place in time and space. But if that's all it is, then it's just a collection of of well-doers. The church also needs to be in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something time and space bound in us as a church. But there's also something transcendent in us, something that connects us not just to the invisible realm, but to the very throne room of grace itself. Well, reminding the Thessalonians of just who they were, he says this in verse 3. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who, who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's look at the, the commendations. He begins with what I call a reputation for endurance. In those first, uh, in the, in, in verses three and four, 
he's going to talk about how proud he is as a pastor of the way they have lived in difficult times. Now, we could talk for a minute about uh, about persecution and difficulty, about trials and tribulations as a normal part of church life. Really, it's just been in the 20th and 21st centuries, particularly in the American church, where we've been so caught off guard when things are difficult uh, for Christians. The reality is that for the better part of 2,000 years, the standard experience of Christian followers of Jesus is that they have lived in a world that was hostile to what they believed, and they have been uh, inconvenienced at best, persecuted and oppressed at worst, because they live by a standard that is not of this world. The Thessalonians weren't surprised by the difficulties that they were having. They understood when they decided to follow Jesus just exactly what was going to happen. They were sacrificing ease and comfort and respectability in this world in order to make a commitment to one that they believed by faith had their eternity in his hands. The American church one of these days is going to have to figure out that the comfort of the day can never be held on to at the expense of the promise of eternity. Well, this is what he says. He says, we ought to thank God always for you. It's a word that means we're obligated to. The way that you've lived your life, Paul says, I have a moral obligation to say thank you to, to God because of what he's done in you. Did your mama ever tell you when, when you were growing up that, that that you need to remember to say thank you? I mean, I, I can remember as a kid a, a, a million times when somebody would hand me something or, or say something or, or make a compliment, and my mother would gently prod with, what do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Thank you. Well, Paul is speaking in those kinds of terms. He says, we know that the church in Thessalonica is such a clear evidence of the working of God that we're morally obligated to offer prayers of gratitude because of that. When you see God at work, there is an implied uh, sense of duty to, to, to say thank you because of the work of God in the lives of the people that we observe. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, he says, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. What a great description of a church. He says, your faith, that is your relationship to God, is flourishing. You're getting stronger in your ability to trust God, in your faithfulness in following God, in the diligence of your obedience to God. We see it more and more. I can say as a pastor, my evaluation of the people of Evergreen is that I can point to specific people and I can say, listen, I see your faith flourishing. I knew you when you came. I, I knew you when we first met. And I've watched you grow in the way you chase after Jesus, in the way you walk with the Lord, in the way you live in the power of the Spirit. <coughs> Your faith is flourishing. And he says, and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Listen, it's an interesting corollary that we find all the way through the New Testament. The, the closer you get to God in your faith... Guess what happens? The closer you get to God by faith, the more the things that God loves 
the more they become the things that you love. Well, what does God love most of all? He loves the church. He loves his people. He loves those people that he not only spoke into existence by the power of his word so that they could one day be in relationship with him for all of eternity, but he loved them not only by virtue of being their creator, but by virtue of being their redeemer. He made the way through the work of Christ to satisfy the penalty for sin so that we could be in relationship, so that we could walk together side by side. God has yearned for fellowship with you since those walks in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve were destroyed, were disrupted by sin. The story of the Bible is God taking the initiative to do everything necessary to get us back to the place where we can be in fellowship with him. And as our faith flourishes, we love the things that God loves, which means our love for the church family increases. When I find somebody that isn't interested in church... They say, well, I, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. We're, I'm, I'm good with God. I, I, but I, I'm really not a, I'm really not a church guy. Well, one of those two statements is, is a lie. I mean, if you're good with God, if you're, if, if you're walking with Jesus, then by definition, you're a church guy because Jesus is a church guy. I mean, this is his bride we're talking about. On the other hand, if you say, I'm not a church guy, that tells me that you're not walking in fellowship with Jesus. See, you can't have it both ways. It's like going to your, going to your friend and saying, listen, man, you're my buddy. I'm with you. I, I, I love, I love being your friend, but I can't stand your wife. Well, what does that do to a relationship? It completely destroys it. Why? Because if you come to me and say, man, I, I want to hang out with you, but I, but I can't stand being around your wife. You know what my answer is going to be? Listen, we're a package deal. You don't like my wife. You, you don't get to hang out with me. Jesus says, listen, I, my church, my bride, we're a package deal. There may be somebody watching this that's, that's really not a part of a church. You're content. You, you like to hear Bible teaching and, and you like to, uh, to be exposed to, to the reading of the word. Maybe it's intellectually stimulating to you, but, but you're not a church guy. You don't attend church anywhere and you've been okay with that. But I'm here to tell you, speaking on the authority of the word of God, you're not good with Jesus. If you're not good with his bride, Paul says, as I've seen your faith flourish, I've also seen your love for one another, meaning the church family. I've seen that increase. Verse 4, therefore, because I've seen your faith flourish, because I've seen your practical love for each other increase, therefore, we ourselves, meaning Paul and Silas and Timothy, we boast about you among God's churches. Man, everywhere we go, we're saying, have you seen what's happening in Thessalonica? Let me tell you about that church. That church is making a difference. That church is flourishing in their faith. That church is loving the brethren. That church is changing the world. He said, we tell them about your perseverance 
And we tell them about your faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. In other words, we tell them how strong your faith is despite the fact that you are in a storm every single day as the world comes down all around you and tries to oppress that faith right out of your heart. He's saying you've got a reputation for endurance. Man, I can't think of too many things that can be said about a church better than that. Man, I pastor a church called Evergreen and, and, and the people... The people are great here. It's such an honor to be the pastor in this place among these people. But I'll tell you honestly, uh, the description by the Spirit of God that I would like to have, I'd like to hear the Spirit say, listen, that church, Evergreen, man, their love for each other and their faith, their flourishing faith in God It is not weighed down or hindered at all by external circumstances. I had just, uh, just finished an article for our worship folder this, this Sunday. It'll be out in a a couple of days and you'll be able to see it. But, but I, I make the case there that this pandemic, this virus scare that has shut down the whole world, while people are living in fear, you know what's supposed to happen to us? We're supposed to be the people in this very moment who are advancing. We're not going to come out of this less than what we once were. We're going to come out of this more than what we once were because even in this moment, especially in this moment, our faith in God is flourishing and our practical love for each other is increasing. That was their reputation for endurance. But then look at the next section. In verses 5 through 9, I've called it the revelation of justice. Let's look at these verses uh, again. Verses 5 through 9. The revelation of justice. He wants them to understand that the fact that they're caught up in persecution and difficult times, he wants them to understand that, that God is an effective keeper of records. Nothing happens not the slightest ministry, not the slightest kindness done in the name of Jesus goes unnoticed in heaven. Listen, there is nothing that we do in the name of Jesus to help others, to, to strengthen others, to, to minister to others. There's nothing we do, no matter how tiny, no matter how obscure, no matter how unseen in this world. There's nothing we do that is not recorded and will be rewarded. But by the same token, there is nothing done against the church of Jesus Christ in any generation that is not noticed, that is not recorded, and that will not be paid back. When the day comes, he wants them to understand that they are growing and maturing and being strengthened in the endurance of their trials. But he wants to encourage them by reminding them that those who bring about those trials, they will not get off scot-free. Look at verse 5. He says, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. In other words, part of the evidence that God's word is true is that you are putting on display the reality of a spirit-filled life. And as you live that spirit-filled life, particularly in difficult times, that is proof, that is evidence that what God has said 
is true. You will be counted worthy. In other words, we know we've won, but because you're giving full effort, because you're leaving it all out on the field, because you are all in when the battle comes up, you will be a bright shining example of the of the worth of God's word, of the, of the validity of God's promises. He has said you're mine, and because you're living in hard times like your gods, like you belong to God, he will affirm, in fact, that that's exactly the case. It's kind of a circular argument. God has made you his. You give evidence that God has made you his because you're living a life that makes you look like you're his. And because you're living a life that makes you look like you're his, God at the right moment is going to, is going to affirm what he did from the beginning and everybody will, uh, will, will agree that you are his. It's a great statement. Clear evidence of God's righteous judgment of his correct assessment. That's what righteous judgment means. You are evidence that God judges correctly, that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. Verse 6, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. He says, here's the way God works. God is a just God and it is just, it is proper for God to bring punishment on those that have done so much damage, so much attack to his church. Those that have attacked the church will in turn be attacked by God. By the same token, those who are in the church, he says, I, God will give comfort to those who have been afflicted along with us, Paul means along with himself and and Silas and Timothy. He's identifying with the church and he says, listen, God is a just God. It's right for him to punish evildoers just as it's right for him to bring comfort to his children who are being afflicted. Now, here's what verse seven says. Uh, the, the last part of verse seven, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Okay. Here's the, here's the fly in the ointment, if you will. One of the, one of the standard questions that comes up in conversation. In fact, I just had an, an evangelistic conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with somebody that approached me and wanted to talk about their objections to, um, to Christianity and the first objection, it's almost always right at the top of the list, but, but this person, their first objection was, why do bad things happen to good people? It's kind of a standard dilemma. And it's usually, it's usually laid down like a trump card that, that sort of just is meant to end the discussion as if there's no answer. Why good things, why bad things happen to good people? If, if bad things happen to good people, the, the assumption is there just can't be a God who's just. In fact, that, that, uh, that old book that was written years ago that articulated this argument, why do bad things happen to good people? It was written by uh, a Jewish man who basically came to the, to the conclusion that, um, that God means well, but he just doesn't have the power to fix every problem. That is a patently unacceptable answer. 
here's, here's the problem. When we see bad things happen to good people, there is something in us. Because we were created in the image of God, we're hardwired for justice. In fact, that's why despite the fact that we live in a generation that considers itself to be postmodern, we live in a generation that tells us regularly that there's no such thing as objective truth, that, that everybody has to create their own truth, that, that morality is something that you make up for yourself. We hear that message over and over and over and over again, and yet the bottom line is when something bad happens, we go, hey, that shouldn't happen. Well, what do you mean it shouldn't happen? I, I thought you said that, that there's no objective truth, that, that the world just is what it is. You just have to sort of make it up as you go along. Yeah, yeah, I know, but, but, that, but that's not right. Well, how can you say it's not right? Well, but I, because I just feel it's not right. Ah, there you go. There's something hardwired in the human spirit. That something is the reality that even though we've been damaged by sin, we are still created in the image of God. And part of that image of God is expressed in the idea of justice. Some things are just wrong and they shouldn't happen. We get that. But when we see something wrong, we think it should be judged, it should be dealt with, on our timetable. And that's the rub. What Paul says here is it is just, it is fair, it is right for God to punish those who have done damage, who have oppressed, who have persecuted his people. Just like it is right for him to bring an ease of affliction, a removal of persecution to those who belong to him. But God operates on his own timetable for his own purposes. You ever wonder why we have ages that you have to uh, uh, attain before you can get certain things? You, you have to be 16 before you can get a driver's license. You have to be 18 before you can vote. Why, why do we set those? Are they just totally arbitrary? Did we just reach into a hand and pull out a number and say, well, we'll, we'll just make this number? No. Theoretically, we evaluated and we said, okay, you're not physically coordinated enough and mentally aware enough to be responsible to drive a vehicle until you're at least 16 years old. We've said you, you're not aware of, of the issues enough to make a reasoned judgment to vote until you're at least 18 years old. You see, we've looked at that and we've said there are there are there's a timetable of when this is the when this is right for a certain thing to happen. We want God to solve all of our problems. We want him to ease all of our pain. We want him to to judge all those who do bad. And we want it done on our time on our timetable. The same way we, the 14-year-old wants to drive a car. Same way a 16-year-old wants to vote for president. We want to jump the gun because in our mind, there's no reason not to. It should happen right now. And yet there is an underlying reality, an assessment of the story that is unfolding that we don't have all the information for. We don't have access to everything. God is unfolding the drama of redemption generation by generation 
until the day that human history is brought to a conclusion. And so God will, as a just God, punish evildoers and ease the affliction of those of his children who are suffering. But we have to wait for his timing. Well, I don't want to wait. Sorry. God's in control. You can push back against that. You can rage at God for not running the world on the basis of your opinion. But all that really does is communicate that you know better than God does about how the world ought to be run. Fact of the matter is, bad things happen to good people. And they will continue to do so, but not forever. You see, that's what Paul has to say here. He says, he says, this will take place, the punishment of evil and the comfort of the afflicted. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Now, let me talk to you about that verse. Those two verses, 8 and 9. He says, everything will be made right in God's timing. That timing begins when Jesus comes back with his uh, retinue, his entourage of powerful angels. Justice will be put into place in that day. That justice involves a couple of things. He, he really describes two different groups of people that the punishment will fall on. Uh, and I, I want to make a distinction here. He says, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on, first of all, those who don't know God. And secondly, on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about two different groups of people, both of whom stand on the wrong side of history. The first group, those who don't know God, he's describing those who have not had a clear uh, informative presentation of who Jesus Christ is. They haven't heard the gospel in, in its fullness. They haven't been presented with all the facts about who Jesus is. And yet, based on Romans chapter 1, we know that God has made what we call general revelation. God has made the general revelation of himself obvious enough just in the reality of creation that anybody who has the sensitivity to look for it can find their way to God. So when he says there is going to be punishment for those who don't know God, I think he's talking about those who haven't heard a complete gospel presentation. They've never uh, tuned in to a, a, a preacher delivering a, a message and, and, and explaining uh, the work of Christ. But they have lived in this world and they have had that general access to the reality of God in the world and they have denied it. They have rejected it. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1 that they, uh, that they took what they knew of God, what was presented just in the normal everyday operation of the world, they took it and they twisted it and they perverted it and they made it into something unnatural. It's a tough lesson for us 
to hold a position that says there are people who have never had a face-to-face presentation of the gospel who will one day find themselves on the wrong side of history, standing in opposition to God and, and, and standing as an object of his punishment. But the reality is God says no man will be left without excuse because he will make himself known enough in what is there in the world. Now, is there an advantage to hearing the gospel? Is there, is there a blessing in the full revelation that comes uh, from the New Testament? Absolutely there is. That's why we send out missionaries around the world. That's why we go to, to, to 28 or 32 countries a year so that we can take the gospel into places that it might not be easy uh, to get it. There is advantage to that. But at the end of the day, there are some who will not hear that kind of presentation but they will still find themselves standing in opposition to God because what was available to them was not received. It was not accepted. So when he says those who don't know God, I think he's talking about that group. But then he says, and this vengeance will be taken on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the other part of, uh, of the planet. Those are the people that have heard the gospel. They do know the name of Jesus. They have been presented with the invitation uh, to, to, to receive forgiveness, to be washed clean. And they've looked at that invitation and they've scoffed at it and they've walked away. Listen, there are levels of punishment in eternity. Paul didn't get into that in this passage, but the biblical witness seems to imply that there are uh, levels of punishment. That only makes sense. Listen, remember I said we were hardwired for justice. We're That's a part of being created in the image of God. Even for us in our secular society, we have a, a, a justice system, we call it, and we have built into that justice system an awareness of of the severity of certain crimes, and we've matched the punishment to the crimes. We have misdemeanors, we have felonies, and we have capital crimes. We say uh, there's certain punishments for misdemeanors. If you uh, if you litter, you might get a citation, you might get a ticket, but you won't be put on death row. But if you commit murder, you don't get to go home with a $50 summons. That's a capital crime. We understand that there are different punishments appropriate for different levels of offense. By breaking this out into two categories, Paul is hinting at the reality that while they will be on the wrong side of God and separation for eternity will be the consequence I think it's significant that he doesn't just say everybody that that doesn't know Jesus. He says those who didn't know God because they didn't accept what they could find in the world that points to God. But the real punishment is going to land on those who knew the name of Jesus, who heard the gospel, who received the invitation, and they chose not to obey. Well, what's the punishment? He says, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Now, that's a little bit awkward in English. Uh, I want you to catch it. I don't, I don't want you to, to miss this. He doesn't say they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction uh, by the Lord's presence. It's from the Lord's presence. When we think of hell, and this is what he's talking about. He's talking about hell. But when we think of hell... 
we tend to think of flames and 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 sinners writhing in pain and and screaming in agony. Um, there are images like that uh, throughout the throughout the Bible about that state of the dead. But the fact of the matter is, think about think about the cross of Jesus for a minute. Uh, we've just come through the Easter season. Think about this. There was physical pain for Jesus on the cross. I mean, he stretched out his hands. They nailed his hands to the uh, to that, that that cross beam. They they put his feet together. They nailed his feet to, to the uh, to the standing beam. There was physical pain. They pressed a crown of thorns down on him. They stabbed him in the side with with a spear. There was physical pain and suffering. But do you know, hands down, the worst moment of the crucifixion. It was that moment of spiritual separation from the Father, something that had never happened in all of eternity. The Father and the Son, for a split second, were torn apart. The Son became sin. The Father turned away and let his wrath burn. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you left me here? Let me explain to you about hell. All we have in the New Testament are attempts to use human language to describe the indescribable. I can't communicate adequately what the reality of hell will be because I'm limited by understanding hell as best I can by the use of of human language. That's all I have to go on. That's all I can come up with. To, to, to communicate, to, to grasp something that, that's really beyond my ability to grasp. But I do know this, whatever physical pain is involved, whatever material suffering takes place there, you want to know what the real punishment of hell is? It's the punishment of Jesus on the cross when God turned his eyes away. And the separation was absolute and unending. You see, the suffering in hell is basically the suffering of a person who says, I don't need God. The problem is you can say you don't need God, but you still get to live in a world where God is everywhere. You get to live in a world where God makes the sun shine on us every day. You get to live in a world where God keeps the earth spinning at the, at the right rate. You live in a world where God has, has made himself known in the very structure of creation itself. You can say you don't need God. You can say you don't believe in God. You can say, uh, you don't have any obligation to God, but you still get to live in the benefit of a world where God lets his blessings fall on everybody equally. Not in hell. That statement, I don't need God, I don't want God, I'm not obligated to God. In hell, those attitudes are set in concrete. Not only do you not have the presence of God, but you don't have the blessings that come from that presence. You don't even get the ripple effect of the presence of God. You know, it's an interesting thing about prisons. Um... Very seldom do they build prisons in the middle of big cities. I mean, I'm sure you can find somewhere, some city on the planet that has a a, a prison right in the heart of the city. But that's not really the case in most places. In most places, 
the prisons are out. They're away from the cities. They're isolated. They're, there's a there's a distance. We have this this sense that that those who need to be locked away need to be physically removed from us. And so we put our prisons away. I don't know where hell is. I don't know physically where it's located. But I know that it's away from God. It's away from the people of God. It's a distance. Because not even the ripple effect, not even the edges of the presence of God, the glory of God will be available in that place. Paul's giving us in just a couple of verses a devastating picture of eternity for those who either reject general revelation and don't discover God or those who have been presented the gospel and walked away with it in rejection. The result is devastating. Why? Because God is a God of justice. And all of the suffering of this church will be made right someday. And it is only just, he says, only fair, that God enact justice on those who have brought it on themselves by by their sin, by being on the wrong side of history. Well, he's going to finish this section with the reward for their confidence. Look at verse 10, saying that that day when when the evil will be dealt with, when those on the wrong side of history will be dealt with, He's going to come back. You remember because he started by saying it's just for God to punish those who have brought this pain to you. But it's also just of God to, to ease the affliction of those that have been persecuted. Well, now he's talked about that punishment and what that looks like. In verse 10, he's going to come back around to the easing of the affliction. He says, on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. In the same way that the coming of Jesus will be devastating to those on the wrong side of history. It means the introduction of hell and permanent separation from the Spirit of God. By the same token, it's just the opposite for those who are encouraged when they hear the, sh- the, the sound of the trumpet, when they hear the shout of the archangel, when they hear the loud command, when Jesus Christ comes for those who are his, it'll be like the bride realizing that the bridegroom has arrived, the marriage is at hand. And he'll say, on that day, he will be glorified by his saints. We will celebrate. We will lift up praises. We will recognize him as king. He's not that little baby born in a Bethlehem manger. He's not a traveling preacher who, who walked among the, the, the dusty roads of Galilee. He's not a convicted criminal at the hands of the Roman Empire. We will see him as king of all creation. And we will glorify him as such. In fact, it won't be just us. Paul tells us in another place that at that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. In other words, there will be no place in all of creation, visible or invisible, where the kingship of Jesus Christ will not be acknowledged and submitted to. But not only will we glorify Him... Look at this. 
on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, he's going to bring us the confirmation. He's going to let the whole world, as we celebrate him, the whole world will acknowledge who he is. But when he acknowledges us, when he recognizes us as his bride, guess what? The whole world will acknowledge who we are. The world persecutes the church in every generation. Motivated by Satan who hates God and he hates what God loves. The enemy fills the minds of those that he uses as as useful idiots to come and, and, and attack the church of God's people. But one of these days, the very people who have been attacking the church will be brought to a place where they have to acknowledge that the church really is the body of Christ. It really is the bride of the bridegroom. It really is the people of Almighty God. We will glorify Him and the whole world will know who He is. But He will confirm us and the whole world will know who we are. Well, Paul is going to finish these commendations by giving some specific intercessions. He's going to talk about the way he prays for this church in Thessalonica. And these are the closing two verses. He's going to start in verse 11 by talking about God's evaluation. He says, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. Make you worthy of his calling. The lives of believers should display a consistent holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't ever make a mistake. It doesn't mean that we don't ever sin, have to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. Listen, when Jesus restored Peter after those three denials on the night before the cross, during one of his resurrection appearances, Jesus calls Peter to himself, and they have a conversation, and he restores Peter. Peter goes on to be one of the great leaders in the early church, the preacher on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people come into the church. Peter was redeemed not only by the salvation of his sins, but he was redeemed for usefulness in the church. Listen, the enemy of God wants you to feel so guilty about the things that you've done that you put yourself on the shelf, that you take yourself out of the game, that you're not a part of the ministry that God's called you to. Listen, if you're on the shelf, if you're out of the game because you've convinced yourself that you're not useful to the kingdom, You're listening to the lies of the enemy instead of the truth of the word of God. Paul says he was praying for the Thessalonian church. He was praying that that God would make them worthy of his calling. Listen, I'm praying that for you. If you're a part of Evergreen, I'm praying that, that every day that you're becoming more like Jesus that you're pursuing in your moments of abiding in his presence, you're pursuing Christ's likeness, that it's transforming you. Listen, it is not uh, an unhealthy ambition for you to do a, an inventory periodically and say, I see God changing me. I feel like I'm more like Jesus than I used to be. See, we, we, we've been told that, that, that you shouldn't think that way because that's, that's prideful. No, prideful is when you think you're a better person because you made a bit, made yourself a better person. 
I turned over a new leaf. I got my act together. I, I, I'm, I'm doing things better now. I've got my life under control. No, that's pride. But to say, you know, God is doing something in me and I'm noticing the changes. I can tell I'm a different person. Listen, that's a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves and to pray for each other. That God would help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That is, just live up to who we are in Christ. That's God's evaluation. But then look at God's power. He says, uh, we pray that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. Now, that's interesting. He says, I'm praying that God, by his power, will fulfill your every desire to do good. Now, think about that for a minute. If Jesus is in you, there should flow out of you a a natural desire to do good, to, to touch the lives of people, to make a difference. But Paul prays a great prayer. He doesn't pray that, that, that you'll want to do good things. He assumes that if the Spirit of God lives in you, if the Spirit of Christ is, is indwelling you, that wanting to do good things is a given. He prays that the power of God will make it possible for you to do the good things that you desire to do. What a great prayer. Lord, it's one thing if you have to pray, Lord, I I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be involved in ministry. You know, that's a whole repentance thing. I mean, you're not, you're not walking with God if that's your attitude. But if you say, God, I want to do stuff for you. I I want to make a difference. I want to touch people's lives in a way that, that, that makes them uh, better because I was there with them. I want to have influence for Christ. You know, it's a great prayer. To say, Lord, I want these things, and I'm praying that you will give the power that will allow me to experience those things that I'm yearning for. I need your power to do the good that I desire to do. Wow, what an incredible prayer to pray for ourselves and to pray for each other in our church family. There's God's glory in verse 12. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. What? Why do I need God's power to do the good that I want to do? What's my motivation other than just I have this yearning? Why Why do I have the yearning to do good things? Why do I need God's power to do those things? Because when I do those good things, I put Jesus on display. And when Jesus receives the glory, he gives some of that glory to me. You say, now wait a minute, I I, I don't understand. You do understand, though, that in eternity, there is a time where you are rewarded for the work that you've done for Christ. Listen, he doesn't call you to do things with no expectation of, of reward. In fact, part of the record keeping in it, in heaven is so that not only will every sin be accounted for and dealt with as a matter of justice, but also so that every action done in the name of Jesus for the advancement of the kingdom will be rewarded. God will not be in debt to any of us. 
And as we bring glory to him, he will set aside some glory for us. Now, when we get to heaven, it's very clear in, in, in the New Testament that one of the great things that we'll be able to do is to be able to receive our rewards as he honors us and as an act of gratitude. Imagine this. Imagine this. We receive rewards for our service in the kingdom. And then we take those rewards and we lay them at his feet because nothing could have happened without what Jesus did for us. Wow. He finishes by talking about God's grace. He says, The Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the only explanation for the enemies of God being turned into sons is grace. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, he says that, um, he says that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. In other words, we didn't have a contractual agreement with Jesus where he says, if you'll give me your life, I'll make arrangements to cover your debt. This was not a, a bank transaction where we negotiated fees and we agreed to give up something if he would give something. No, he loved us so that he paid the price whether we ever would agree to accept it or not. It's his grace that makes everything in the Christian life possible. But while we were still sinners, while we were still on the wrong side of history, while we were still enemies of the throne, he provided a way of salvation. And then once the debt was paid, he offered it to us freely. And in that transaction, we give him a life broken and shattered by sin. And we become a new creation, receiving the wholeness that he is transforming us into until the day that we kneel before that throne. They say there'll be no tears in heaven. I think that must mean tears of sadness only because I'm pretty sure it's not going to be possible to kneel before that throne and not be overcome by a wave of emotion for the gratitude that Jesus did what he had to do so that he could save me. In these two verses, verses 11 and 12 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1, you can find guidelines for praying for yourself and interceding for others in your church family. Take these two verses, chew on them, ponder them, memorize them, and let this shape the way we do battle on behalf of each other as we bring one another before the throne asking for God 
to give us the power to live a life worthy of our calling and to, and to uh, fulfill the good deeds that we yearn to do so that Christ is made glorious as king over all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.